Well, it's good to see you all uh, this morning and to be able to open God's Word together. Uh, let's pray, shall we? I know there's been a little bit of movement as people are coming back in and going out and all sorts of stuff, but let's pray. Let's open our hearts up before God as we open His Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, you delight to speak to us and share Your heart with us. And we pray today that as we open Your Word, it would not be words on a page or on a screen alone, but it would be as if you're speaking to our hearts. And uh, Lord, that we'd hear a fre- something fresh from you today. Uh, Lord, that would shape the way we think and the way we live and the way we uh, comprehend you and your workings with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've got a new series, uh, which is starting today. And uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be unpacking uh, this thought of talking about David. David's the king of Israel. Uh, don't mind Claire, she's just having a little wander around, we'll be okay. Um, David, the king of Israel, and I want to just talk um, the reason why we've chosen this topic, because we love preaching and opening up the Bible in a way that's practical and life-giving. Uh, ideally, we want uh, a preaching on a Sunday to be relevant to Monday. Uh, we want you to be able, all, each of us, to be able to put it into practice uh, Monday through to Saturday and come to church again and, and be inspired and hear something else of God's Word that, again, you're putting into, we're putting into practice through the week. It's no good if we just box it up on a Sunday and go, oh, that's really interesting, put it back down again and, and don't have anything else to, to live out. And so we're looking at the character of David because of all the people in the Bible that we could look at, David's, there's so much written about him and he influences so much of the biblical story. And he's someone who you can identify with, I think. Now, as far as I know, we don't have any royalty in the room. There's no kings. Uh, David was a king in Israel. So you might be thinking, well, I don't really identify with that bit. And he's, he's a Jewish guy who lived a very, very long time ago. Uh, you might not be identifying with some of that stuff as well. You, his worldview was different, his perspective was different, his experiences were different, but there's something about David's honesty and the way he lives his life and the way uh, he, he's open before God that allows us to get insights into our relationship with God and how we can live for him too. The Bible's full of stories of heroes. Uh, and David may be one of yours, he may not be, uh, but he's an interesting character, and as we go through these weeks, we'll see something really special, I think, about him. And so I'm setting the scene a little bit today, uh, giving a little bit of the overview of the, the very first part of the, the, the way we encountered David, and then we're going to go on from there. So David, if you're not familiar with the story of the Bible, uh, much of it is to do with the people of Israel and God's people. He chose them as a nation for himself chose them not just so that they could be happy and be with God, but chose them so that they could represent God to the nations of the world. When God spoke to Abraham in the very beginning, a guy really early on in the history of humanity, he speaks to Abraham and he tells him that he's called him and wants to bless him. And through him, he wants to bless the, the nations of the world that will come through him. So Abraham's chosen to follow God to be a blessing to the nations. And this sense of calling to be a blessing continues through Israel's history. They're chosen, but to be God's people, to represent him to the whole of the nations that are around. That's the plan that God has. And we go through the stories in the Old Testament. You go through stories of Abraham, through some Moses, and a guy called Joshua. And then we get a whole book, which is called Judges, 
Now, now in, our, in our thinking and remits, judges are people that you try not to appear in front of very often. They're people you try and avoid, aren't they? Uh, most of us wouldn't want to sit in front of a judge unless we really had to, or unless it was kind of part of your job to do that. But judges in the Old Testament are people who God raises up for a short time, and usually to get Israel, his nation, out of a bit of a pickle. And normally it's a bit of a pickle of their own making. Normally people have gone away from God, and God raises somebody up uh, for a short time to lead the nation, conquer the enemies who are overrunning them, and to set them back on their feet again. And then the judge dies. That's kind of how the book of Judges goes. And then we get the figure called Samuel into the next bit of the story. And he's kind of bridging the gap between these judges who come and go, uh, and God raises them up for a short time and they disappear again. And he's bridging the gap between them and kings and queens that we're going to hear about in Israel's future. And so this guy called Samuel bridges the gap between this, this group of people in Israel who are all bit all over the place, and God's raising up anointed men and women to lead for a short time into this settled uh, monarchy, settled in their own land. They're settled with a leadership structure in place that's going to lead dynastically, generation after generation after generation, and so on through. We get this mighty figure of Samuel in between. He's a fiery character, preaching the word. He's, he's uh, challenging people. He's a prophet. He's priestly. He's this kind of judge character. He's a bit of everything rolled into one. And before we get to the kings, we get Samuel. But the people of Israel want a king. They start getting a bit agitated because they look around at all the other nations and they go, well, something like this. Well, all the other nations have got a king. We want a king. We want to have settled leadership and somebody in place that we can look to. We don't want this kind of temporary leadership that was raised up and crashes back down again. We want our own king. And so they cry out to God for a king. And Samuel's a bit frustrated with this, but eventually he relents and God seems to relent too. And then what happens is they get their first king. And this is what the Bible says about the first king of Israel. There was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, the tribe of Benjamin. His son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. Now, in terms of qualifications, he's doing pretty well, isn't he? So it's from a wealthy family, from a good tribe, tribe of Benjamin, and then we've got Saul whose head and shoulders, it's not a dandruff shampoo, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. He's this mighty, impressive character. Kind of guy it's really useful to go shopping with. You know what it's like? Uh, Judith, my wonderful wife, is not blessed with height. And so going shopping with her in a supermarket or, or a shopping you know, department store is challenging because I'm only five foot nine. Uh, and so I kind of, you have to go up and down every single aisle. Whereas if you were the really tall person, and some of you will know this, you don't have to move at all, do you? You just scan the store, and you go, oh, yep, there they are, sorted. So Saul's that kind of character where you can identify him quickly, but it's not just useful when you're shopping in supermarkets, I imagine particularly in Israel in this day, but it's useful because there's this mighty figure that everyone can look up to and go, Saul, you're the man. You're the man we want to follow. You've got all the credentials. You come from a wealthy family, from a good tribe, and your head and shoulders taller than anyone 
else. You're an impressive guy. Oh, you're also the most handsome man in Israel. Don't you love it when the Bible describes people in this sort of way? You go, well, I wonder how they measured that. Was there a contest? Did he win Mr. Israel that year? Or, you know, what, how, how do we know that he's the most handsome man? But anyway, that's what the Bible says about Saul. Yet at the same time, Saul is self-conscious. He's paranoid. He's insecure. He, he, he's not sure of his own self and who he is and, and who God is. And there's actually a problem with Saul's heart. Not a medical problem. But he's got all the external characteristics of a great king, an impressive man. But actually there's a problem inside. And when we pick up the story of David, we realize that Saul's made some, a few poor choices. He's made some good ones. But he's made a few poor choices as a result of how his heart is and how he is as a person, despite how impressive he looks. And we get to this story here when we're getting on to David, the man we're actually going to be talking about for a few weeks. And we read this. And Samuel went home to Ramah. And Saul returned to the house, of Gib- house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel never went to meet with Saul again, but he mourned constantly for him. And the Lord was sorry he had ever made Saul king of Israel. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you've mourned long enough for Saul. I've rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. That's an amazing passage. God's already rejected Saul. He said, no, you're you're no longer going to be the king. But there's that, that amazing thought that God's sorry that he ever made Saul king of Israel. That's, that's awesome, isn't it? Just that, how does that work? This is God who knows the beginning from the end, and yet at this moment, he's, I'm sorry I made him king. Ah, oh, look how it's ended up. And Samuel's mourning. And God, God of action, says, Samuel, you've mourned long enough. And you may notice if, you're, if your brain's going ahead and you're connecting different bits of the Bible, you may notice Bethlehem mentioned, and it's Bethlehem, and interesting that that Samuel's going to choose a king who's born in Bethlehem. Kind of rings a bell somewhere, doesn't it? You know, think of another king who would come, who born in Bethlehem. And, and we see here that uh, this, this kind of sense that there's, he's, he's important already. There's, he's coming from the line of Jesse. And Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And Ruth's got her own book in the Bible. And there's this kind of sense that God's unpacking the lineage of future kings, but also to the greatest king, Jesus, who would come. And we see in this passage and in this story that David is a man sought by God. That David's a man chosen by God. Saul was chosen, but when Saul goes his own way and is rejected, God is choosing another person, a man to lead his people on. This whole sense that God chooses people raises a really interesting point. It raises, just if we just pause for a moment before we look at David, it raises the thought that God is actively observing what's happening in his world. He's actively searching out and looking at people's uh, actions. He's looking at their hearts. He's seeing what happens, seeing what people are doing. And he's choosing people for his purposes. He raises up prophets and priests. He raises up these judges. He raises up kings queens. He raises up people who will be spokespeople for his 
purposes. But not just the high and mighty, not just the ones who have books named after them in the Bible. Look at, look at verse, uh, this second verse down. For the Lord sees every heart and knows every plan and thought. Not just, not just the, the, the hearts of the high and mighty, he sees every heart. He knows everyone's heart. God knows what's going on in our thoughts and our hearts right now. And out in the world at large, the billions of people, God knows every single person. God sees the heart. David, writing in Psalm 139, writes this, O Lord, you've examined my heart and you know everything about me. It's a wonderfully encouraging thought. There's no way you can go where God is hidden from you. No way you can go where you are hidden from God. God sees. And those anxious thoughts you have, that, that prayer you pray, which is half a prayer and half a cry, that, that prayer where it's not articulated well and you haven't got the right words and you don't end with amen and it's just, ah! God sees it and he knows and he's not distant. And those times when you can't express and you can't find words, these, these verses encourage us with the thought that God knows all about us. Our way is not hidden from him. I've spoken about Samuel a little bit this morning already, and Samuel's mum was a lady called Hannah. She couldn't have children. I guess you know because she was Samuel's mum that the story doesn't end there. Um, but she couldn't have children at the time we first read of her, and she's in the temple crying out to God. And the priest, as she, he watches her anguish, thinks that there's something wrong, and she's behaving inappropriately at the very least. And she assures him, no, 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 this is a heart's cry. This is my heart's cry. And God hears the cry of Hannah as she's broken. And God hears the cry of injustice. And he hears the cry of poverty. And he hears the cry of the enslaved and the imprisoned and the poor. And consistently through Scripture, God hears the cry of those in need. And his response is for people. His response to those who are not in those situations is to be those who are actively helping and engaged to solve the problems of injustice and poverty and enslavement. God investigates the cry of cities. We read in Genesis chapter 18, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where everything's gone wild and rampant and, and sexual sin is, is prevalent there. And instead of marriage being what it should be and relationships being as they should be between man and, and, and the wife, then we've got this city which has just gone crazy with sexual lust. And God comes to investigate What's going on? In Genesis 18, verse 20, we read this. The Lord told Abraham, I've heard such a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I'm going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I've heard. If not, I want to know. So God's stepping in to see what's going on in that situation. He's observing. He's watching. He's sensing. He's checking out. And it's not just the sexual sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a, a problem with the way they're treating the poor. And there's a problem with justice issues, which God raises elsewhere as well. There's a big issue. He's coming to investigate these things and saying, I've got a concern for the poor. I've got a concern to investigate what's happening. There's a verse I love which links in with this thought that God is checking out our hearts. Have a look at this. 
this just so encourages me because I've spoken on this before and this thought that God knows everything and sees everything. Uh, and if you're not a fan of God uh, and you're a bit nervous about him and you think, well, that's a bit intrusive really because I'd quite like to have a bit of me that God doesn't know. I'd quite like to hide a bit away and have some secret stuff that God doesn't see and it feels a bit rude. It feels like it's breaching some kind of data protection regulations because surely I should be able to lock away some of my private data somewhere where God doesn't have access to it. And the truth is this, that he sees everything. He sees our hearts. He knows us. He knows every way that we go. But there's a good reason for that. This is a fabulous scripture. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. We can get this sense that God's waiting to pounce. If someone's heart's not quite right or there's some stuff that they're hiding away. But this is the motivation for why God knows everything that's going on. He wants to strengthen. He's looking for opportunities to come alongside. He's looking for those who, who are just crying out to him. He's looking for opportunity to come and to work in their lives, to give them strength and resolve and, and, and to help. That's why God's searching our hearts. He's coming to strengthen and heal and support. Similarly, Jesus talks in the Gospels about seeking and saving he talks about having come to seek and save those who are lost and tell stories about the lost. In Luke chapter 15, we read this. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go and search for the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he'll joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he'll call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sheep who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. This, this story of David links into this theme that God is searching people. He's not sitting up high, distant and uncaring. He's entering in to our world and into our lives day after day after day. And he's searching. He's looking for people whose hearts are his so that he can strengthen them, so that he can come alongside and bless and resource and help. I believe each of us are here today because God's already looking for us. He's already searching us out, not to condemn, but to strengthen and to draw us closer to himself. But why? David. David had brothers. David, I mean, this is a funny story, really, because the story goes on that, I didn't read the rest of this bit, but Samuel is told to go and anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king, and Samuel says, well, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. I told you Samuel was, Samuel was a bit of a key figure. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab, that's Jesse's eldest son, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or by his height, 
for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shimea. But Samuel said, neither is this one the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. And so Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. Then the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there amongst his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he'd brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. What a, what a crazy story. We've got this sense that, that as Samuel goes, and God's already chosen David, Samuel's job is, is to find the one that God's chosen. And he does it by a process of elimination. Starting with the eldest and the tallest and the, again, a bit like Saul, probably the most impressive. And as he arrives to Jesse's house, Samuel knows who the next king is. He knows who it is that God's chosen. It's, this, it's Eliab. It's obvious. Anyone can see that it's Eliab. And God says, no. He's not the one I've chosen. You're looking wrong, Samuel. You're looking wrong. And, and Samuel actually does the thing that we do. And, and it says there right at the top. I don't know if you can see on the screen. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought. We do this all the time, don't we? You take one look at someone and you know all about them. Do you do this? I know I do. You take one look at someone and you know how clever they are and how much money they earn and, and what they do for a living. You know all about them. You've pigeonholed them. You've categorized them. If you're not quite sure in a few details, you might say, oh, hi, I'm so-and-so. Here are you. What do you do? Then you've got all the information you need. So you take one look at someone and instantly you've got them. Uh, but of course you haven't. I love meeting people and trying to keep an open mind, trying not to make assumptions as I meet people. I love hearing stories that I wouldn't have associated with what's in front of me, with the image of the person that I'm talking to. To discover that there's secret kind of riches and depths and interests and things that surprise me. I love that. But of course, even discovering all those things that surprise me reinforce the fact that I've made a judgment in the first place. Because if I truly kept an open heart, I wouldn't have been surprised, would I? Because nothing would have surprised me. But the very fact I'm enjoying hearing the stories and going, wow, that's amazing, I, I never would have thought. It means I have been thinking. Because I've done what we all do, which is take one look at someone and sum them up. Now, interestingly, I don't think in this passage, God is telling Samuel to not do that. He says here, people judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I don't think God's telling Samuel to stop looking at the outward appearance because it's almost inevitable. It's just one of those things we do. In fact, the Bible surprised me as I was reading this through and I'd forgotten this, but verse 12, which I read out, when we get to David and he arrives from looking after the sheep and he's brought in front of Samuel, Samuel in the book of Samuel it says, 
of David, he was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. Like, for goodness sake, Samuel, you've just been told that not, you know, God's looking at the inside, not at the outside, and we get another description of the outside. It's like we just can't help ourselves. Even Samuel, recording in this book, is, is kind of copy, doing the very thing that God said, well, not not to do, but he's just observed that this is what we do all the time. It's really hard not to. And yet consistently, I want to encourage you, God chooses differently. And if you're not feeling like the most intellectual person or the best equipped person or the most able person or the fittest or whatever it might be, God chooses differently because he's always looking at the heart. And he always has done. I'll just just come to a couple of people because I had a a few on my list here. But uh, Paul, the great apostle. Now, Now, I might look up to Paul in terms of his intellect. This is a guy that uh, became a Christian and, and ended up writing a huge chunk of the New Testament. Uh, letters to different churches and he started churches and he solved problems and he, he fixed stuff. An amazing guy. Peter, writing about Paul's letters, says he writes many things that are difficult to understand. He's a, he's a brain on legs, Paul. Incredible intellect. Uh, and yet there's a description that's reasonably contemporary of him which describes him like this. Small in size, bald-headed, bow-legged, well-built, with eyebrows that meet, with a rather long nose, but full of grace. So if you fit that, I'm not going to look up at this point. If you fit that category, small in size, bald-headed, bow-legged, well-built, with eyebrows that meet and long nose, then, then you could be like Paul. I'll look up again now. Jesus, in the book of Isaiah, describes Jesus. We don't know what Jesus looked like. All the pictures and all the films, he's very handsome, isn't he? But yet in Isaiah, it says there's nothing to attract us to him. I suspect we've got it wrong. I suspect Jesus wasn't the, uh, the kind of figure that we see in the films. And in contemporary days, we get characters that God uses. A guy called Smith Wigglesworth, some of you will have heard of. A Pentecostal preacher uh, from a generation or so ago. But couldn't read or write. Was taught to read by his wife once he'd got married. Taught to read by learning the Bible. And he loved the Bible. He wouldn't allow any other things in the house. He wouldn't allow a newspaper in the house. Just wanted to read the Bible. And this simple guy, God used powerfully. Another story, I've got a picture of this person on the screen. A lady called Gladys Aylward. Have you heard of Gladys Aylward, anyone? A few of you? Okay, great. There's a film written about her with a wrong title called The Inner Six Happiness. And she, it's about an inn that she had, which wasn't called The Inner Six Happinesses. But there we go. They got that bit wrong. Um, but Gladys Aylward... Another little lady who was called to mission. And she spent three months doing a course with a China inland mission to learn Chinese and to get uh, kind of adapted with the culture and to try and go to China. And she didn't learn the language well enough, and so she was rejected. She completed the course, but she didn't go any further. But she still had this sense of a call to mission. And, and it was in 1932 when there was an older missionary, an older female missionary in China, uh, that needed help, that Gladys Aylward wrote and was able to go to support this one missionary. She wasn't going in a kind of formal way. And she'd done some service, some work serving, and she spent her life savings on a train ticket because she couldn't afford the boat fare to get to China. Normally, you'd go by boat. But she went on the train and ended up on going on the Trans-Siberian Railway through some pretty dangerous territory on the train because she couldn't afford the boat. She was detained by the Russians, but managed to evade them with local help. And then she took a lift on a Japanese ship 
And then she traveled across Japan with the help of the British Council to get, and then another ship to China. She and this missionary that she was working with decided that it would be a good idea to share the gospel by having an inn, a place where the travelers could come. They're in a tra- on a trading route. Uh, and they opened up this little inn where, actually the story goes that Gladys would go out and she would get the lead mule as the, the kind of animal trains were coming past and she'd pull it into the inn and all the others would follow automatically. Didn't have any choice. And so the traders had to come because all the animals were there gathered. And while they were there, they would feed and, and shelter the, the travelers, but they would also tell them stories of a man called Jesus. And the stories about Jesus went far and wide. Uh, and eventually, a, somebody fairly high up in China at that time came to the inn. Uh, and they came because they'd changed the law Prior to that time, uh, girls often had their feet bound to make them very small so they could walk in a particular way that was considered to be elegant. Uh, but it causes mass- it caused massive problems, and the, the feet bones were broken and reformed, and this, problem was out- this, this situation was outlawed by the government. But they needed someone who, actually a woman, to go into homes and to, to share this, this law that had been passed and to, to bring a change. They needed a woman. It needed to be someone whose feet weren't bound because the women whose feet were bound couldn't go very far and couldn't walk very far. So, and it needed to be someone who, who had some respect and could go anywhere. And so the Chinese authorities chose Gladys to go and tell the news of this, this new law. And so she went around whole areas in China bringing release for, for the women in that time. Incredible story and incredible transformation that it brought to people's lives in terms of social care and social justice. But she also adopted some children into her family. And as the Second World War broke, uh, she took a hundred of those children had already gone. She, they were looking after children in an orphanage. And she took a hundred children with her up over the mountains to escape at one particular point as the Japanese were invading. Incredible story. Looked after leprosy patients. She was immortalized in a film with the wrong title. Uh, but she said this about herself. I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done in China. I don't know who it was. It must have been a man. A well-educated man. I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. And God looked down and saw Gladys Aylward. And God said, well, she's willing. She wasn't qualified. She wasn't good enough. She wasn't the right gender. But she went anyway. And she went and hundreds and hundreds of people's lives were changed and the gospel spread across that part of China because one woman who didn't fit the criteria, who didn't get accepted by the missions organization, was prepared to go anyway. What is it that God's looking for? What was God looking for in David? He's looking for a few things. He's looking for readiness. Readiness to listen to God. Why was, why was David chosen and Eliab rejected? It wasn't because Eliab was tall. It wasn't because he was just like Saul and God wanted to do something different. That's not the point because God was looking at the heart. And so what that means is that God looked at Eliab's heart and went, nope. And the same with the seven brothers until you get to David. What was it about David? Well, David was a man who was always ready to listen to God. Secondly, he was always willing to obey. I've got a verse on the screen that you might be able to see from Acts chapter 13. It says this about David. David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. 
Oh, that that may be said about us. That we're ready to listen and that we would do everything God wants us to do. We could stop there, couldn't we? How's that sitting with you? How's that resting, that thought, that we would do everything God wants us to do? Because it's really simple, isn't it? Number one, you listen. And number two, the answer is yes. It's, it's not, can, can we just try that? Can we just say yes after me? Ready? Yes. Yes. Okay, one more time. Yes. Okay, you practice now. So next time God speaks, you've got the answer ready. Yes, but some, somehow that, that word seems really difficult to get out, doesn't it? At times when you get a sense of God saying something. Uh, but, but what about, Lord? But, but surely not me. But are you, are you sure? And so what we can do after time is just go around like this, hoping that God's speaking to somebody else instead. Because we just don't want to have to say yes to God. But David was a man who said yes. And he had pure motives. He wasn't seeking after position. He didn't mind being left behind looking after the sheep. He had pure motives. He had integrity. Humility. A desire for God. And he responded to God. When we're talking about integrity, David made some huge, huge mistakes. In fact, they weren't just mistakes, they were sin. He, he chose to disobey God in some terrible ways, and we, we may get to bits of that story later on, another week. And yet, we hear that David is a man after God's heart. And you might think, how does that happen? How can David make such critical errors, choose to go against God's way, and yet God still says he's a man after my heart? And it's for this reason particularly that God is looking at David's response. The last thing I've got there is a godly response. And when David sins, immediately he's challenged on it. He repents. There's no explanation. There's no excuses. He's not saying, oh, but, but, but you need to understand. Saul does that. Saul, when he's challenged, gives excuses. But David doesn't. He goes, yep, I'm the man. It was me. I sinned. God, would you forgive me? Uh, and we see in this passage that integrity and holiness isn't about what we do on the outside alone. It's God is looking on the inside. He's looking for whole, wholeness and holiness and integrity on the inside. Not because what we do outside is unimportant. I, I'm not saying you can go and murder someone but have a happy heart and God will be pleased with you. That's not at all what this says because everybody sees what we do on the outside. It's not an either or. God already knows that, but he's also looking at the heart. The bit that nobody else can see. And he's saying, I want your heart to be right before me. David was humble of heart. He wasn't easily offended. David didn't have a, a delicate self-image. It didn't matter to David what other people said about him. His ego wasn't bruised easily. He didn't hold a grudge. Saul did. And we do at times. Because our ego is so fragile, it matters to us what other people think about us and say about us. It matters whether people like us or don't like us. And David was humble before God and willing to accept correction. And he had a heart that was open before God. So what is it that God sees in us? Well, I read that verse earlier on. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. What does God see? Well, God sees whatever's in our hearts which is fabulous news because it means we can stop faking. You can stop pretending. You can stop pretending before God. You stop pretending to be religious. 
We can stop pretending to have it all together because he knows everything. He sees our hearts. And, and I guess there's two ways that can unravel. Firstly, we could go, I can go, great, I can be real. But you know, I never really wanted any of this anyway. And I'm really miserable, and I'm this, and I'm that, and blah, 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 blah. And we can just tell God our story about how we are and be real. Now, that might be okay. People encourage other people to do that sometimes. That might be okay as a, as a, a route on a journey, a, a stop on a journey, but it's not okay as a destination. Because there are times when you need to just get stuff off your chest and say, oh, God, I'm feeling like this, but we can't stay there. It's okay to get through that time, but we need to get to a place where actually we're saying, God, you've heard all that. You can see I'm a mess. I need you. I need you. And that's the point David gets to again and again and again. He says, God, I need you. I can't pretend anymore. I've only got you. You're all I've got. You're all I have. I need you. Encouraged by David, my encouragement to us today is to let God do heart surgery on us. I grew up near... Harefield Hospital, northwest London, uh, northwest London, just on the outskirts, an amazing centre for heart surgery. Remember when some of the kind of early uh, open heart surgeries were happening and heart transplants, just hearing about that in the news and just being excited about some of those, those things taking place. And uh, it's time for God to do heart surgery on us if we need it. The starting point is to be honest, it's not to try harder. It's not to try and be more like David. It's not to try and be better. not to try and be more spiritual or try and be more religious. It's to be honest and examine ourselves and spot our pride and come near to God and hide his word in our heart. Psalm 119 verse 11. And develop a heart that responds like his. And find grace. I know I'm rushing through these, but that's on purpose. Find grace. I think this is the key. Finding grace, I think, is the key to all of this. You see, if I think I've got to get right with God by my own efforts, I'll try and pretend. I'll try and make it okay. I'll try and cover stuff up. I'll try and hide my sin and convince God I'm okay. But if actually I know I'm not, and I come to God saying, I need you. I need you. And then I receive his grace. Then I receive his acceptance and his forgiveness and his love. I can do away with pride. And I can do away with hiding. And I can do away with pretending. Why? Because I know I desperately need him. And I know he's found me. My encouragement today is to find grace. If, like Saul, you find yourself insecure, you find yourself Identifying pride when you look into your heart. If when you're challenged on stuff, you're defensive and you explain and you cover up and you find yourself being like Saul, then find grace in God. If you're like David already and when, when something happens, you just go to God and say, God, I need you, then you're in a good place. You might feel weak, but it's a good place. But receive God's grace again and know that he accepts you. Why, why David? Why does all this matter? Well, I believe genuinely that God is wanting to support those whose hearts are his. I believe more than that. We did a, a little series uh, for a few weeks called What Are You Carrying? And I just want to finish with this thought. 
I don't think we finished that series, but I didn't have a full sermon to preach, so I didn't. But as well as carrying some stuff that we need to bring to God to get him sorting out in our lives, I think we're also carrying hope. I think we're also carrying gifting. And I think we're also carrying calling. And I think we're also carrying potential. And I think we're also carrying things that God has deposited in our lives that we need to take into the world and use to serve him. I think we're carrying stuff on behalf of God that the world hasn't yet seen. And I think it's time. It's time to use the gifting that God has given. It's time to step into the purpose of God and say, God, it's not about me, but here's the stuff you've given me and I want to serve you. And some people in this room have been called by God. You've got ideas for things, you've got longing for things, but also you've got a calling from God to serve in a particular way. And you've put it off, and you put it off, and it's not the right time. And, it's and God's saying, it is the right time. This is the year to step up. This is the year to, to take hold of what I'm calling you to do. This is the year to step out and to take the gifting I've given you and to move into a new area. And we cannot do that in ourselves. We cannot do that full of pride. We cannot do it because God's chosen us because we're the, the strongest and the tallest and the brightest and the best. No. We might be the weakest, we might be the shortest, we might be the the least of whatever, but God is looking for people whose hearts are right before him. He's looking for people who are honest, who examine themselves, who root out pride, who come near to him, who hide his word in their hearts, who develop a heart after God, and who live in grace, who can go to parts of this town and parts of our community and go into our workplaces and say, here's a gift from God for you. Why? Because it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. I wonder if we can pray together.